We are going through a series of messages together in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn over there with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking today at how the gospel is being expanded across the world by those who are sent and the response that the gospel is creating. There are certain messages when you receive them, you can't remain neutral. The gospel is one of those. And in Luke, and in Luke, in Acts 17, Luke reminds us of the response that the gospel created in two strategic Roman cities. And this is how Luke recorded it in chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I'm proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went down there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Just as these believers were sent out into their world, so we are sent out into ours. The response that the gospel creates is the same today. We should expect this and rejoice in the fact that we are sent out to proclaim a message that's still saving people who believe. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you'll show us and teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's been a lot of controversy in the NFL, the National Football League, over the last week, and it didn't have anything to do with what was going on in the field. It had everything to do with what was going on during the National Anthem. Players, coaches, owners, refusing to take a stand or locking arms or remaining in the locker room until the anthem was over. All of this they said in response to President Trump's message 
that such responses disrespect our flag and all that it stands for, and that those who do this should be fined, fired, and any patriotic Americans should boycott the NFL. Now, regardless of where you stand on this issue, no matter which side you fall on, one thing is true. His message created a response. In fact, it was intended to do that. Because there are some messages that go out and a response is expected. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of those messages. Because when the gospel goes out, people who hear it cannot remain neutral. They're going to fall on one side or the other. But it's very hard to remain the same. You see, we're in a series of messages in the book of Acts reminding us of our own history as a church and what it really means to live for Christ in a world that doesn't know him. We are witnesses, we've been learning. Witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and all that it means for those who believe, and all that it means for those who don't. God uses our witness to multiply the numbers of people who believe, and then they, along with us, are sent out to spread this gospel and the salvation that believing it brings. We're impacting the world for Christ. And as we share that message, it creates a response, just as God intended. For Paul and his team, they traveled 110 miles south now from Philippi, where there was no synagogue, to the city of Thessalonica and to Berea, both having a synagogue, both the place where they could meet with biblically educated people. And when he preached the gospel, it created a response. The very same response that it creates today when we are sent out to proclaim that same message. And as Luke reminds us, we are sent to proclaim the gospel that creates a response in all who hear. What was the response? Well, some heard and needed to be persuaded. Others received the message with great eagerness. We are sent to proclaim the gospel to some who need to be persuaded. Paul said in verse 1, when, or Luke said in verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. It was, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. When Carla and I travel, for whatever the thing, we're going to speak somewhere, she's going to sing, or we're going to a conference, or even on vacation, we often pay for our expenses with a credit card, probably like many of you. Now, when I walk in and use my credit card, I'm not surprised that the gal or the guy behind the counter says, can I see your ID? Now, I've learned over the years that what they're saying in that moment is not, I don't believe it's you, and they're not saying, I do believe it's you. What they're saying is, I don't know if it's you, so give me some proof. So I'm happy to pull it out, show them my ID, which they barely ever look at anyway, but 
at least I know there's another layer. What they need is to be persuaded that the person handing them the card is really me. That's the kind of reaction Paul and Silas got when they arrived at the city of Thessalonica and preached the word of God at the synagogue. Some of the people didn't say, we believe you. Some said, we don't, or, or we don't believe you. What they said is, we don't know if we ought to believe you, so we need more proof. We need to be persuaded. So Paul gave them the proof. In fact, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Luke said, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. He reasoned with them. He literally had a dialogue. And so it was probably going something like this. Paul would go into the synagogue. When he got his chance to speak, he would start sharing the good news of the gospel. And the people would then ask him questions. And he would give answers. And he would share a little more. And they would ask him some more questions. And they were reasoning back and forth in a question and answer time as Paul is explaining this to them, Luke said. He's literally opening it up so that they could understand. And as they heard more and more of his statements, he began showing them in the scriptures why this was all right. He began to prove it to them. Literally, he was said, I'm laying aside the evidence alongside my claims to show you all that what I'm telling you about this Jesus is accurate. He is the Messiah. He had to suffer, die, and rise again. He was laying out one Old Testament proof after another that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah promised by God. And this went on for three consecutive Saturdays. And the crowds kept growing. And he probably had groups during the week that he was meeting with. What was the result? Well, it says in verse 4 that some of the Jews were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. They were persuaded. They were convinced that the message that Paul was sharing with them was accurate. That it was really talking about this Jesus, that he was the Messiah. They were persuaded that what Paul said about Jesus was true. So many of them believed. And they started following the teaching of Paul and Silas. And this was no small group. By the way, Luke was careful to remind us this was a large number of people. Jews, a large number of Jews, and God-fearing Greeks, and not a few, many prominent women, probably the wives of some of the local Thessalonian officials, civic leaders, and religious leaders. They were persuaded. And why shouldn't they be? Because Paul was reasoning with them from the Scriptures. The Scriptures that are the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you are teaching the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, Jesus emerges everywhere. All 39 Old Testament books, all 27 New Testament books are all about Jesus. It's the revelation of him. In fact, once Jesus told the crowds in John 5, verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. 
Moses lived 1,500 years before Christ was born. He was writing about Jesus? Yes, he was. All the books of Moses present Jesus Christ. All the historical books of the Old Testament present Jesus. All of the Psalms and the Proverbs, all of the prophets, they all present Jesus. In fact, what Paul was reasoning with them there was the revelation of Jesus Christ with one Old Testament proof after another. In Genesis, Jesus is presented as the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the rock that was struck that brought forth living water. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he's the deliverer. In Ruth, he's the kinsman. In Kings, he's the ruler. In Nehemiah, he's the restorer. In Esther, he's the advocate. In Job, he's the redeemer. In the Psalms, he's clearly presented as the one who is the savior, the shepherd, and the sovereign king. In the Proverbs, he's the wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the goal. In the Song of Solomon, he's the groom. And his bride is the church. The prophets, he's the coming one. In the Gospels, he's the God-man. In the book of Acts, he's the risen one. In the epistles, he's the head of the church. And in Revelation, he's the king of kings and lord of lords who's coming again to reign over a kingdom that will never end. He's everywhere in here. No wonder they were persuaded. Paul said, you want to know who this word is writing about? His name is Jesus, the one who suffered and died and rose again. He is the Messiah. And they were persuaded. The scriptures present Jesus as God in human flesh, born of a virgin, the seed of Abraham, of the line of David, who lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose again, and is coming to reign as king of kings. The one who's offering hope and forgiveness and eternal life to those who believe and receive him. Paul explained and improved this and some were persuaded, but some weren't. Some rose up in opposition. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let him go. They opposed the message, not because it was, wasn't true. They didn't like it. They didn't like its effect. They didn't like what they saw it doing. And so they opposed it. They were jealous. They were jealous of the crowds that were gathering to hear Paul. Attendance at a synagogue had never been better. They were jealous of Paul's effectiveness and his knowledge of the word, but they were really envious of the fact that so many prominent people were leaving the synagogue to follow Paul and Silas. 
You know, many times when people can't find a way to win the debate with the truth, they try to silence the debate and destroy the opposition with violence. We see it happening all the time. It's been going on in Berkeley with the riots that have been going on there. Why were the people rioting? Because the, a group at the campus wanted to bring in a conservative speaker like Ben Shapiro, whose views don't really coincide with the majority of people at Cal Berkeley. So rather than have a sincere debate, listen to the guy, which was a ticketed event, by the way, an option, nobody was forced to go. Rather than just letting the guy come and debate him, they didn't even want his views to be present. And so what they did was they got a mob together and tried to prevent people from coming in. It got so bad that they had to arrest people and had to provide police protection for the speakers and others who were at the thing. You see, when you fear the shallowness of your ideas and that they'll be exposed in honest debate, some try to silence the ideas by opposing the messenger and stopping the message from being heard. That's what these Jews were doing. They weren't arguing Paul's message on its face. They didn't like it. And so they decided to shut it down. They went to the marketplace, hired a bunch of thugs, got them to bring up some drummed-up charges in hopes that Paul and Silas would get dragged out, they'd be tried, they'd be imprisoned, they'd be banished, or they'd be killed. Well, when they got to Jason's house where they knew they were staying, they couldn't find him. So they dragged Jason and they dragged the other believers that were at the house out into the streets. The authorities saw it. They gathered. They said, hey, these people are defying Caesar and they're proclaiming another king. They're causing trouble all over the world and now they're doing it here. And Jason's had him at his house. And it said it threw the officials into turmoil. Because now you've got these guys saying there's another king but Caesar... That posed one problem, but there was a bigger problem for these officials. You remember, it says many prominent women came to the Lord. Many of the wives, probably, of these officials who were at the synagogue, heard Paul and Silas preach for three Saturdays. Now they're coming home saying, honey, guess what? I'm a follower of Jesus. And now they are, as officials, being told that these are the guys you want us to throw out of town, and these are the guys my wife is following. It caused a little more than turmoil. So as soon as it was night, they whisked Paul and Silas off to Berea, 45 miles south. Why is that? Because they had to post a bond. Jason and his companions had to post a bond guaranteeing to the officials that Paul and Silas would leave the city and not come back. Paul later wrote to the Thessalonians after he had left that he thought it was Satan's attempt to hamper the gospel. So when he wrote back to them, he said, we were torn away from you for a while, and I wanted to come back, but I couldn't. He couldn't come back because a bond had been posted by Jason and the other believers that if they came back, they would be arrested for violating the bond. So Paul had to stay away. That's why he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. I couldn't come back. Paul said Satan did that. Well, you know what? It may have kept Paul and Silas from preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, 
but it didn't stop the Christians from preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. In fact, they preached it even more. And it spread not only across the city, it began to spread across the region. And then it went out of Macedonia into Achaia. And then it began to go everywhere. In fact, when Paul wrote about it later, he said in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe tr- suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. And, you, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. You see, you think Satan would learn after a while. You try to stop this message from getting out, it's only going to spread with a hotter fire. That's what happens. When people are persuaded of the truth of who Jesus is, they cannot and will not be silenced by those who are not persuaded. And the message that Jesus is the Messiah spread out across the Roman world by those who were sent by God to proclaim it. People, I know it's hard for you and I to accept this. But there are countries in the world today that where I'm doing, what I'm doing right now is illegal. You can't get up and tell people about Jesus like this. You can't use a Bible in public. And the Christians have to live underground. The truth of the matter is, that may come to America. There may come a time when Satan tries to stop the message from going out in this country, where guys like me will be illegal. But don't be alarmed. Because as long as there is one Christian left who's persuaded, and I hope God counts me among them, as long as there is one Christian left who is persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the only way to salvation, the message will never be silenced. In fact, one person and God can spread it across the world. It will not be stopped. That's the gospel you and I are sent to proclaim. That's the gospel we're remembering today in this communion. And not only are we sent to those who need to be persuaded, but we are sent to proclaim the gospel to some who will receive it with eagerness. In verse 10, Luke wrote, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. If someone offers you an old book, uh, I would take it if I were you, and I would look inside for the treasure that may be revealed. I was reading this week a piece that was uh, about the huge online bookseller, abebooks.com, where they eagerly receive old books. And they look inside for what may be the treasure in there. And they listed just a few of the things they found over the years. 
uh, in some of these old books that have been donated or sold to them, they have found things like a Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card. I have no idea what that thing's worth. A diamond ring, a handwritten note by C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and many others. Tons of credit cards, gift cards, and check this out. In one of the books they got, interspersed between the pages, they found 40 $1,000 bills that someone had stuffed in an old book, and they had sold it to the bookstore. Needless to say, at abebooks.com, they eagerly accept the old books that are coming in. And so should we. You see, that's the response Paul and Silas got when they preached the word at Berea. It was eagerly received. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of a more noble character. They were of a higher birth. They were maybe a little more educated, a little more open to what was being taught. Than those at Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They received it with eagerness, great eagerness. Literally, a readiness of mind, an eager willingness to hear more about the scriptures they read in case they had missed something that the scriptures were saying. They were eager to have this. They didn't need to be persuaded. They just needed to hear it so that they could then check the scriptures themselves to see if what Paul was saying was true. It's interesting. They didn't evaluate Paul's message by how it aligned with what they had always believed. And they didn't evaluate it on how it affected or fit with their agenda. And they didn't accept it or reject it based on political correctness or the accepted cultural trends of the day. And they didn't evaluate it based on what their friends told them or thought or what celebrities told them they should think. Or they didn't review the majority responses on social media. They evaluated the message by the one proven absolute standard they knew that they could trust. It was the word of God. It was the scriptures. And that's why it says in verse 11, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They examined it. It's the word investigated. They tore what Paul said apart and they brought it into the word and they made sure that everything he said was aligned with what God was teaching. You see, this is why the Bereans who looked to the Word could never be misled. Because they evaluated everything by the Word of God. It's the very same thing that Paul told Timothy he should base his life on. You remember 2 Timothy 3, verse 16? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, this is why so many people get misled today. Because they don't know the standard by which everything is to be evaluated. This is why so many Christians get misled today. 
because they don't know the standard by which everything must be evaluated. How else can you explain so many Christians who fall for the generic watered-down version of Christianity that's so often preached today? Do you remember Pastor Phil's message last week from Acts 16 about the slave girl who was following Paul, Silas, and Timothy around proclaiming these men are teaching you the way of God and how to be saved? Well, what was wrong with their message? Why did they stop that? Because it was so generic, it was meaningless. In fact, you could have taken any God you wanted and plugged it into that formula, and you could have made your God be the Savior. It was too generic. So they had to preach Jesus. It's no different today. Christians are getting gobbled up all the time by contrary views because they don't know the standard by which all views must be measured. In fact, the truth of the matter is today, without the Bible, you have no idea if what I'm telling you today is true. That's why the cults are so successful. I don't have time to unfold them all. Just take one. Take Mormonism. One of the biggest confusions. If I walk up to a Mormon and ask him, do you believe Jesus is Lord, the Savior of the world? They're going to tell me yes. Have this conversation all the time. If you don't peel back the veneer of that, you'll swear they're Christians. But what they won't tell you without further digging is that Jesus is the spiritual brother of Satan himself. That his blood and sacrifice did not pay for all sin. And that Jesus does not ultimately reign in the highest heaven because he was not married. Now, most Mormons aren't going to tell you that unless you dig. And then you have to take that and lay it up against the word to help them to see that Jesus they have isn't the real one. And because most Christians don't do stuff like that, they believe that most Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and those of the Unity Church and the prosperity gospel is just another version of Christianity. It isn't. It isn't. How do so many Christians otherwise embrace the views they embrace? How do so many Christians embrace the immorality of homosexuality or the tragedy of transgenderism? or the erosion of godly standards of sexual, moral, and ethical purity, because their opinions are based not on the Word of God, but on circumstances, preferences, what their friends are doing, or the cultural norms that prevail in society today. People, the church was never to look like the world. The world was to look more like the church. But the Christians are getting absorbed into the world because they don't do what the Bereans did. They don't take everything they're hearing and forming their views based on what God says, not personal opinion. That's the difference. But the Bereans, they were more noble than that. They weren't going to be duped. So they took everything Paul taught and they ran it through the scriptures. What happened as a result, verse 12, many of them believed is that also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The gospel begins to spread because people believed it and they were sent out and others believed it. Yeah, there's always people like the Jews who said, oh, they're preaching down to Berea. Let's go down there and try to stop that. Didn't work. It only spread all the more. In fact, it drove Paul off to Athens, as we're going to see later in the book of Acts, for one of the most powerful presentations 
of why Jesus is the one true God and everyone else is false. Some messages create a response and some people are eager to receive it. You know, historians say there may have been two primary things that fueled the revolution in 1775 and 76 that led to the founding of a new nation. One was a speech given on March 23rd, 1775 at the Second Virginia Convention at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. When a 38-year-old lawyer got up and powerfully made the case as to why Virginia should form a militia to begin the resistance against the oppression of the British Empire. That man was Patrick Henry. And when he got done with that compelling speech, he closed with the words that became the rallying cry of a revolution. Give me liberty or give me death. As soon as that message went out, the Virginia House was forced to make a decision. We're either for the revolution or we're for Great Britain. The other was a guy by the name of Thomas Paine who wrote a 47-page pamphlet in 1776 called Common Sense in which he very clearly, in the language of the people, mapped out the justification for American independence. That pamphlet became a bestseller in the colonies. It swept across the colonies like a wildfire. People were so impacted by its message that it drew a dividing line between those who were for the revolution and those who wanted to stand for the king. In fact, John Adams once said, if it were not for the pen of Thomas Paine, the sword of George Washington would have been lifted in vain. It was the words of the message that created the response. Words have meaning. Words can be powerful. And there's no more powerful word ever spoken than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people, when that word goes out, to those like you and me who are sent to proclaim it, it will create a response. There will be those who need more to be persuaded. There will be some who never will be. But there will be some who receive it with eagerness. That gospel is what we're remembering today at this table. Where Jesus said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood, it's given for you. So as often as you eat it, remember me. This is our response. This is the response of believers. And our response also is that we are sent out to proclaim this message. A message that brings glory to God and joy to people who believe it. Father, thank you for the reminder today of what it really means to be sent and of the gospel with which we are sent. A message created to elicit a response. A response that can lead to eternal life to those who believe. 
Thank you for Paul, Silas, Timothy, and for allowing us to see that as the gospel spread, it was being spread by those who were sent and those who were unashamed of the gospel. As we gather at the table today with our brothers and sisters, I hope you'll be honored to know that there are a lot of us still who have heard the good news and we believe it. Thank you. May it be for your glory and our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.